I'm Modesser Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR Unmasked. This is the first part of our four-episode series where we look at America's foreign policy challenges for the next decade. In this episode, I travel to Washington, D.C., where on behalf of the Concordia Forum and in partnership with the Atlantic Council, I hosted a panel to explore online censorship, hate speech, and the challenges to freedom of expression. The Atlantic Council is an international affairs think tank galvanizing U.S. leadership and engagement in the world. This discussion was led by my good friend, Catherine Brown, President and CEO of Global Ties US, the largest and oldest citizen diplomacy network in the United States. It is truly an honor and a privilege to be here again. Um, I have had the the distinct uh, honor of being associated with the Council and the Millennium Leadership Program for almost 10 years now, and the fantastic work that they do around the world, bringing people together, having difficult conversations, really chimes in with the work of the Concordia Forum. And today we're particularly privileged to be able to bring together such a wide range of people to discuss some of the challenges facing American foreign policy. The Concordia Forum, of course, has been around for almost 15 years now, and we've successfully convened leaders across Europe and North America. We're very proud to have very strong alumni communities in places like Germany, Belgium, Australia, Canada, of course here in the United States, and our home, the United Kingdom. Thank you to Madassar, thank you to the Concordia Forum, and thank you to the Atlantic Council. I'm honored to be here with you today to introduce the first panel, again, online censorship, hate speech, and the challenges to freedom of expression. This plenary will focus on the high-stakes battle between states, citizens, and technology companies where the rights of Internet users have become the main casualties. The plenary will address these conflicting challenges and review how to minimize a wide array of online harms, while getting the human rights balance right and not curtailing online freedom of expression by government or big social media firms. Um, We are gonna start with a keynote address from Alex Johnson and then move to our our experts on the plenary session, on the the panel. Um, So first, I'm delighted to introduce Alex Johnson. Um, He's gonna be speaking to the US war and misinformation, countering online propaganda and state-sponsored cyber attacks. Alex is the deputy director of U.S. Foreign Policy of Open Society Foundations and the former Chief of Staff of the U.S. Helsinki Commission for the 116th Congress. He was the first African-American to hold this position since his establishment in 1976, and he's an expert on European human rights and transatlantic security. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I remember how the words burned, how the racial epithets seared my developing memory on the sports fields, in the classrooms, through the streets of my youth. Hate speech is not victimless, as we all know here today. Even with technological innovation, not much has changed. Whether it is deliberate disinformation or the chaos wrought through misinformation, state and non-state actors have found refuge in social media platforms and the new digital tools to wage covert war. The most tragic part is that the most vulnerable in our societies become the first port of call for such attacks. As such, Our policy should center on those who are targeted, particularly the disenchanted, the divested, the disconnected, the othered, marginalized, or victimized in both virtual and real worlds. It is no coincidence that these are the same communities targeted by hate speech. 
It only takes a brief look back to the U.S. presidential election of 2016 when I watched as family and friends who look like me forfeit their right to vote as they were convinced by sophisticated social media narratives arguing that this democracy was not for them. While this has happened for decades before, technology platforms have accelerated the capacity of those who wish to stifle the voices of others and those who seek to create a chilling effect against the expression of diverse identities. In that election, too many hateful words were considered political speech by tech platforms to avoid being perceived as skewed toward any one political party. How could platforms allow known misinformation and disinformation to be distributed to solely maintain a perception of political neutrality? We must not let technology be a catalyst for hate. Digital spaces mirror real life in that hate exists in both. In more than a decade working with the late Chairman Alcee Hastings and traveling to the Organization for Security and Cooperation Europe, or OSCE, Human Dimension Implementation Meeting in Warsaw, one of the biggest human rights events in the world, I helped advance policy as a part of the U.S. delegation that was often conflicted. We grappled with a domestic imperative to protect speech while countering the violence of hate speech. We found it difficult to debate other delegations with a definition of protected speech in the U.S. that was too often overly broad in its interpretation, yielding space for hate speech to flourish. Our simple policy answer was to counter hate speech with more speech. However, that can only work if the ver other variables of message transmission remain the same. And we have seen that that is not true while algorithms and content moderation on some platforms have yielded increased asymmetry in hate speech. The question we should be asking in all of our discussions today is, are tech platforms meeting their obligations to society in terms of countering hate speech, misinformation, and disinformation? Are those efforts the same across different markets, languages, and geographies? How hate speech how is hate speech treated must be consistent or those who seek to do harm will adapt and find other opportunities. Also, as digital spaces are segregated by AI and machine learning, how are we preventing hate speech and the coordination of hate-motivated crimes? AI has proven insufficient at intercepting the codes and dog whistles used to mobilize the storming of the U.S. Capitol, for example, with Confederate flags as recently as January 6th last year. It takes communities to be involved in content moderation, just like any other form of active citizenship. It is the same for fighting disinformation. We must deliver the full spectrum of our societies for effective oversight. Everyone needs to be involved. Some platforms have established oversight boards, but are they diverse enough? Are these oversight mechanisms purpose-built? And do they offer the due process for content that has been moderated? I'm sure another challenge that we will discuss today is a definition for hate speech. Can we reach a universal definition of hate speech that empowers international agreements? Can we bring daylight so that hate has no dark digital corners to hide in? We need a common denominator to build movements. In the context of global conflict today, we can't not mention the tragedy of the invasion of Ukraine. It has shown how hate speech has become increasingly weaponized for geopolitical means. Reports have indicated that General Vitaly Gerasimov, a chief architect of the Kremlin's chaos-generating information operations, was killed in combat 
in an invasion domestically justified in Russia as a fight against neo-Nazis? How could narratives like this gain so much traction among some demographics? Are state-controlled outlets being sufficiently identified on platforms to empower the media literacy of their users? Since the, since the invasion began, the Kremlin has even sought to stifle independent outlets providing resources for victims in Ukraine. What we should take away from this conversation today is that as long as the business model for tech platforms is to target audiences and individuals with distinct and identifiable data, that model can be co-opted by state and non-state actors to nefarious ends. Our conversations today should be restorative to our societies as a whole. Thank you very much, Alex. And, and we're now going to turn to our expert panel. And so I'm thrilled to introduce, um, first, we'll go down the line. So I'll first introduce Graham Bookie. Graham is the Senior Director of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, based here in DC. And previously, he served in various positions at the White House and National Security Council, most recently as an advisor for strategic communications, with a focus on digital strategy, audience engagement, and coordinating a cohesive record of former US President Barack Obama's national security and foreign policy. Um, he also worked in the East Asia, Middle East, and North Africa directorates at the NSC. Welcome, Graham. And next, I'm um, honored to introducing Keith Ellison. Keith is an American politician and lawyer serving as the 30th Attorney General of Minnesota. He previously served a dozen years in Congress, representing Minneapolis and the rest of Minnesota's 5th District. And Keith Ellison earned a place in history as the first African-American elected to Congress from Minnesota and the first Muslim to serve in the, in the House or Senate. Welcome. And next, we have George Saleem. He is the Senior Vice President for National Affairs at the Anti-Defamation League. And he came to that position with approximately 15 years um, of service in the executive branch. And prior to that, worked for a variety of nonprofit endeavors. Welcome, George. Thank you. And so, uh, Graham, I'm going to ask you to go first, and I believe you're going to talk about election disinformation and protecting a shared set of facts that democracy depends on. Thank you so much. Uh, and I'll be, I'll be very brief, because I think this community in particular knows what the stakes are when it comes to uh, the shared set of facts that democracy depends on. And so, I, as Catherine said, my name is Graham Brookie. I, I run a, a center here at the Atlantic Council. It's right downstairs. Uh, and we have staff across five continents. Uh, the opening that Alex just laid out, the, a lot of the stakes here. And right now, today, we have a very large team that's looking at the shared set of facts around the conflict in, in Ukraine right now. For us, a large part of what we do is research on the online information environment for things like manipulation, things like defining things that feel like a very amorphous, like disinformation. So I'll start with, with kind of how we see this set of challenges, or how we define these things. Disinformation for us is, is deliberate spread of false information. That means somebody is intending to lie. And that is obviously a major, major challenge in elections. Now, that's a little bit different than misinformation, which is the unintentional spread of false information. I think it's fair to say I certainly do. Uh, we typically all have uh, at least one family member who engages in misinformation from time to time. It makes for awkward conversations at, at holidays and things like that. So for us, disinformation and a focus on elections is really, really important because elections in free and open societies are when we all come together and need a shared set of facts to make collective decisions. Now, this has become a kitchen table issue here in the United States because 
of things like what Alex just mentioned, Russian interference in, in 2016 elections, in the presidential elections here. That is what became a kitchen table issue. And when you say something like disinformation uh, to whoever in this country, it, generally they'll kind of know what you're talking about, know that it's a challenge that we face. For us, it's one of these things where it's a catalytic vulnerability. When disinformation touches a discrete topic, whether that's any number of the challenges that were laid out in the opening of this session, climate change, uh, racial justice, uh, like any, any, any challenge that we face, as soon as disinformation touches it, it makes it a lot harder to solve for. Right. Uh, because you don't have the stakeholders who have a shared set of facts, the shared set of facts to go and solve that problem. How that relates to elections, why elections are so important. Uh, 2020, I don't have to relitigate the disinformation challenge that we had in this country and we continue to have in this country around things like the big lie. And as Alex said in the opening, disinformation is not, this isn't a victimless crime, right? It's, there are very real world results of coordinated efforts towards disinformation. Now, I would say this, sitting at a foreign policy think tank in DC, the scale and scope of domestic disinformation in the United States right now is far greater than anything a foreign adversary could do to us. And it's also a, a vulnerability that foreign adversaries definitely try to exploit. So what we did in 2020, how we set up to solve, or at least start to chip away and solve for this problem, is we started a thing called the Election Integrity Partnership. And a lot of the groups that deal with civil society, a lot of the research and academic groups, uh, partners in media sitting at this kind of unique space between government, media, and the, especially the technology companies that we've uh, addressed in the opening, we got together and we said, what are we gonna do about this? And we monitored disinformation about the elections. Now, disinformation on elections doesn't start just during the election cycle. Disinformation focuses on topics, especially in the lead up to 2020, uh, where we have a supercharged kind of erosion of the said, shared set of facts around things like uh, COVID, what the World Health Organization would define as an infodemic, uh, which is, as they would define, an overwhelming amount of information, some accurate and some not, that leads to a situation in which it's really, really hard for people to make decisions for or to figure out kind of what is, uh, what is factual in order to make decisions for their own kind of personal security, things like that. Uh, so COVID disinformation, uh, the reaction to the overwhelmingly peaceful uh, racial justice protests in the United States. So we had this situation leading up to 2020 where it was charged. And disinformation absolutely takes root. And for us, what we tried to do was monitor disinformation about not only the results of the election, but the process of elections, where, when, and how to vote. And we monitored this and tried to create some amount of resilience, some amount of resilience for the overall information environment. Now, I think we have a long way to go in that effort. Clearly, we're not done. We expected that, you know, after, uh, after a few sleep-deprived months of monitoring uh, election misinformation, we would have a little bit of reprieve. Obviously, that's not the case in terms of monitoring disinformation that leads to radicalization, something that George has a lot of experience in. Uh, and it's an effort that continues to this day. Uh, so a lot of work to go. I think we've made a good amount of progress in uh, how at least having a shared understanding of what this challenge is among those committed to a shared set of facts. Uh, but this is just the beginning. And it'll have to continue with partners like these, uh, partners like the Concordia Summit across a, a, the next generation of, of leaders that the Millennium Leadership Program is focused on building. 
So with that, I know that we have a lot to take care of. That's the basic overview of what we're doing. Uh, and I'll hand it back. It's a huge undertaking, Graham, so thank you for all that you're doing. And, and Keith, I'm going to turn to you. Um, how citizens use technology to tackle injustice? Well, you know, let me start by saying that there, we have to acknowledge there is a shared responsibility to counteract the, the disinformation. It's not just the tech, the privately owned tech platforms. It's not just states. It's not just private citizens and users. There's also an important, there's an important role for everybody, including state AGs. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say state AGs can do a lot because we enforce uh, unfair, deceptive trade practice laws. And I believe pushing out false information uh, uh, in, in the area of uh, business, commerce, or trade uh, qualifies. Uh, and we should look at uh, actions that we can take when we see concerted, deceptive efforts uh, to, to fool uh, not just consumers, but, but really anybody. But the main thing is, this is not somebody's problem. This is all of ours. We all have to figure out how we get involved in it, and including here at this forum, with the, uh, uh, the, at the Concordia Forum, I'm so pleased we're having this conversation because it's putting some, some, something on our shoulders to do. And I appreciate your comments so much, and certainly, Professor, thank you. The other thing I want to say is this word lie. I think we need to examine it, because a lie is a is is deception it's untrue but it's also has moral baggage on it and the people who who are engaging in this deception don't see it that way they see it as strategic mm -hmm. they're like it's not lying for me to fool my enemy and so we've got to step out of our moral uh box uh not that we should be immoral we should always be moral and do what is right but you can't assume that you're the people you're trying to address are operating on the same moral framework as you are. Mm -hmm. If somebody sees you as their enemy and out to somehow defeat you, then they don't see what they're doing as lying to you. So if you say lie and you think, oh, I'm going to shame them into not doing this, you're wrong, and you've got to reexamine what you're doing. Um, they're not going to stop. If, some, if somebody believes that in America, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men are being replaced by everybody else, and that there's some finite amount of opportunity that's available, and that if I get a little, you get a, you get less, then, then that person doesn't see, they see you as a, as, as a problem that is non-negotiable. And I just think it's important for us to set that on the table because it'll help uh, us approach the problem in a, di in a slightly different way. You can't just go to somebody who believes that and say, you're lying and they're going to change. They mm -hmm. will not change. So the other thing I, I wanted to talk about is, is that, you know, clearly, as everything's been said is true, there's been this explosion because the technology allows us to accelerate. But disinformation's always been around. Lies are not new. I mean, people have been making up stuff and saying it forever. And uh, Lord knows, in the, my experience in politics is like, okay, here's another story. And it, and it is, it, there's a lot of reasons that it's annoying, one of which is that it just waste time. And one of the things that that shows me is that when these stories are told, they're not always designed to convince you of their truth. Mm -hmm. They're designed to confuse you and create a false controversy. So if you take the area of climate, for example, um, you know, it's well documented that the people who perpetuate, you know, climate myths, 
they, they don't want you to believe that they're right and that there is no climate change. They just want you to believe that there's some doubt about the science, mm -hmm. slow down, don't. And, and so that, that's really the goal, understanding that convincing somebody of the, the, the lie is, or the falsehood is not necessarily the goal, but it's just to create a controversy to slow down, disrupt, undermine, weaken, uh, so that we will have less of ability to move out with mm -hmm. resolve. Um, it, you know, and important to keep those things in mind. But, uh, but I can tell you that what I think is at really stake, at stake here, and I'll hand it over after I make this point, is that there are a fair number of people with power who are tired of representative democracy. Mm. We have to just acknowledge that. They're done with it. They would, they would rather have a strong man with some elite friends just decide things for everyone else. Uh, that is the structure of Russian society today, as far as I can tell, with Putin and the oligarchs. But that's not the only one. I mean, look at Saudi Arabia, look at uh, Brazil and Bolsonaro. That we could just run the table. And in fact, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, I'll just be candid and direct. I think that a guy like Donald Trump looks at that scenario and thinks, why should I have to put up with all of this democracy? Mm -hmm. I, I, I just want to do what I want to do and have my friends who, who I'll take care of them. And so we, I believe that there is a concerted erosion of democracy. We, they, we don't want everybody's opinion. We don't, and, and, and so the job of this moment for everyone is to say that, 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 that democracy is worth it, that representative democracy is worth it, that yes, it comes with a lot of arguments and a lot of fussing and a lot of fighting and everybody gets their say so, and it doesn't always look orderly, but it is worth it. And we should stick with it. And we should defend it. And we should fight for it. And if we make that commitment to ourselves and each other, I think what we come up with is a good plan to make sure that we have some common set of facts that we can all base decisions on. And honestly, I, you know, I'll say I'm a, yeah, I'm, a, I'm what people might call a progressive, liberal, bleeding heart. I've been called all of that. But... And it's probably true to a large extent. But, um, but I don't mind debating with the conservative, as long as we're debating on 2 plus 2 equals 4, mm -hmm. as opposed to 2 plus 2 equals 27. You know, as long as we're operating on the base, as long as they, they I, there is a cogent argument to be made, the government needs to be restrained, the taxes should, could be lower, that you need a robust foreign policy. OK, fine. But now we're debating over what, where you want to slice the cake as opposed to whether or not there's a cake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I'll turn it over to George, but those are a few thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, and for the reminder that representative democracy is hard work and how important it is to build trust yep. in order to be on the same page and have the same set of facts. So thank you. And George. Thank you. Over to you. Uh, and so Attorney General Elson, tough act to follow. I don't know if I have a good cake <laughs> analogy, but I will do my best. You got a few in there. <laughs> um, a, few, a few thoughts to kind of frame this issue, Catherine, before we jump mm -hmm. into some question and answers. The first point I'll make overarching that echoes the theme of my previous panelists is that social media companies and technology platforms need to do better, period. They need to do better across a range of different categories. They need to do better on detecting uh, hate speech and disinformation and misinformation on their platforms. They need to do better on their governance structures. They need to do better on their uh, artificial intelligence algorithms. They need to do better with their transparency on their policies. 
They need to be clearer with their advertisers and funders and potentially a restructuring of their business model in general. So in summary, the technology and uh, social media space needs to make significant improvements. And I can illustrate a number of examples in that regard. The second key theme that I, I really want to underscore here is the pattern and trends of hate speech online and when that hate speech and misinformation and disinformation online leads to real world acts mm -hmm. of either domestic or international terrorism. And there is, there, is, there is lots of patterns and specific examples on that. And let me start with one and kind of start to open up this conversation. Uh, in calendar year 20, 2021, last year, uh, the Anti-Defamation League did a online survey of, of a whole host of folks asking them when they, when they received or, or perceived to be the victim of online hate or harassment. And so here's the canary in the coal mine as it specifically relates to the patterns and trends of anti-Semitism. Roughly a third of individuals who publicly identified in their persona as Jewish in some form or fashion, uh, identified as being uh, the recipient of hate or harassment online on a social media platform. Nearly double that percentage of individuals who publicly identify in their online persona as Muslims identified being the victim of hate and harassment online. Likewise, nearly double the number, nearly 60% of individuals that publicly identified as African-American identified being the victims of online hate and harassment online. So what we know is one of the oldest forms of hate on the globe, anti-Semitism, is often the canary in the coal mine. So when we see instances uh, like individuals marching through the streets in Charlottesville, Virginia, with tiki torches chanting, Jews will not replace us, that wasn't just a convening where friends called each other and said, hey, let's mm -hmm. get together in Texas, or let's get together in Charlottesville in Southern Virginia, and let's hold a rally. There was organizing, there was mobilizing in the online spaces, and there was echoing of those messages online. That was in 2017. In 2018, we know for a fact, to Attorney General Ellison's point on lies and the, and the uh, impact that they can have, a gunman walked into the Tree of Life synagogue based on information that he said he could not tolerate to see online anymore. Attorney General Ellison mentioned the replacement theory. We see this common uh, with domestic acts of terror, also with international terrorism. But what makes these particularly lethal is this element of accelerationism, which is, I'm not just going to wait to be replaced by black and brown people in this country. I need to do something mm -hmm. now. We saw that in Charlottesville in 17. We saw that in Pittsburgh in 18. We saw that in Poway in 19. We've seen this, and the victims of the El Paso Walmart shooting know this. Mm -hmm. The hostages in Coleyville two and a half months ago, two months ago, they know this. They've seen this. And so the hate speech and vitriol online leads to real-world action. And as the Attorney General mentioned, we, can, we, we have to have a conversation about 2 plus 2 equals 4. There is a problem online. We know it results in victimization. And most horrifically, it results in loss of life. We know we've seen the past three years some of the highest numbers of anti-Semitic incidents online and offline that we've seen in our nation's history. We need to do better to combat hate speech. We need to do better to push back against misinformation and disinformation online. Lives depend on it, and it's a conversation that needs to be multi-sector, multi-domain, mm -hmm. and that conversation has a sense of urgency and relevance today like it's never had before. So those are some framing topics I'll start with. 
And Catherine, if it's okay, I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, thank you, George. Thank you so much. And I think you know you were you're going towards this whole society approach that's needed. But I want to stick with the tech platforms because Alex asked this question during his keynote about our tech companies meeting their obligations to society. And and each one of you talked about needing to work with the shared you know shared set of facts um, to move forward in this. But the 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 tech companies, social media platforms in particular, are largely acting in this voluntary capacity to self-regulate. We've all seen the Facebook ads that they want regulation. Um, and in, I'm hoping that we can go through a little bit more about what that role for legislation and regulation is. But I also want to come back to, George, your point about you have examples of mm -hmm. how you think they can be doing better. Um, I worked at Facebook. I know how hard so many of the people there work to try to improve it. So I do want to go through and sure. get your ideas for those examples. But let's first start with what, what kind of legislation should um, be going out there? What should Congress be doing about this right now? And I'll start with you, Graham. <laughs> uh, it's always great to be in pole position on this question in particular. Uh, first and foremost, it is absurd in tech policy conversations in this country that we don't have a federal data privacy standard. Mm -hmm. That's table stakes. Full stop. We do not have a federal data privacy standard. A number of states are taking the lead on trying to figure out exactly what it means to have privacy online as a citizen, what your rights are. And until we have a federal standard, we're, uh, we're responsive to uh, international uh, bodies like the EU who have set standards for sure. Uh, but most of all, privacy is essential to free speech in a lot of places in this country, right? especially for marginalized communities. So first and foremost, a, d a federal data privacy standard. It, you see a lot of kind of momentum in Congress right now around uh, both competition, you know, large platforms being too large, not transparent, and then not accountable enough. I think that that'll probably result in something. You have a lot of uh, momentum in Congress right now around transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, that goes to some of the kind of spicier bills, let's say, that's a technical term, spicier bills, uh, around reforming things like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that goes towards what content is, is uh, allowed to be online or what, what platforms are accountable for in terms of what users post on their platforms. And sure, I, I think that the internet at this point is, is bigger than what, the, what Section 230 would have, I think it's like two clauses, three complete sentences. I think the internet is probably bigger than that regulation at some point at this point, and so we've got to figure out how to do that. But I think it's also a question of balancing of rights, right? How does how does your right to say whatever you want, including patently false things, uh, balance against my right, and in fact my need at this point for for fact-based information to make decisions about my health. Uh, decisions about my my standing in the world, my, my job, things like that. And I don't think we have a very good balance for that. I think there's a good amount of momentum, like I said, but we're we're nowhere near that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I, I agree with all of that. Uh, certainly from a attorney general standpoint, we need greater tools to make sure that there's uh, you know, accurate information online. You know, quite frankly, uh, it's not even just the overt lies. It's it's just the curation of, of content that we're we're dealing with. Recently, a group of AGs uh, got together and said we need to look at TikTok because mm -hmm. uh, they uh, we we have reason to believe that the way they they design their algorithms promotes not just stress and anxiety, but depression, suicidal ideation, and food and eating disorders. It's not that what is being presented is like untrue. 
It's the concentration of it, mm -hmm. and it's the manipulation of the information, mm -hmm. which drives a certain uh, set of behaviors which are unhealthy and bad, but, uh, you know, help TikTok make money. So mm -hmm. the, the thing is, is that, that, that that's, we've got we've to get into, into that as well. And I, don't, I think we have tools to do things about it now, but I think they're antiquated at this point, and, we, and we've just simply got to catch up. Uh, so I'll hand it to George. I, I would agree with that. And Attorney General Ellison, I, I will kind of make one point. I'd welcome your kind of response to this point in particular, which is ADL has worked very closely with Attorney General Racine here in the district on, on, and party to a number of these pieces of, of litigation and full supporters of that. But as we think about how to round out this conversation, the role of the criminal justice system and state's attorneys generals doing more on this is a critical component. My fear is that it is too long in the timeline for immediate impact when we see private businesses like we see today ceasing their operations in Russia due to what they see as, as, as a moral issue that they need to take a stand on. Do we need a, a multifaceted approach that involves litigation, that involves private industry, that involves you know, technology and congressional uh, legislation, as Graham pointed out, Section 230 reforms? Where in that, if I may ask you, sure. where in that order does litigation by state attorney generals come into play? I think it's a critical part. I don't know if I could rank them, but I know that we can't be out of this, okay. right? And here's the thing, you know, uh, AGs can often act quicker than the than US AGs. We can be a little faster. We can be a little bit more nimble. I mean, it was state AGs that sued the uh, US Postal Service when uh, you, we, when the head of that agency was throttling uh, mails to sort of undermine uh, people voting Balance, by mail yeah. on ballots. And so, you know, there's a lot of things, and we actually are in the middle of litigation as a, as a team on a bipartisan basis, uh, on Facebook, uh, on this TikTok thing we're doing, and, and many others, so we can work as a team across the country on a bipartisan way, often faster than the federal government. Now, the federal government is the big, is the big, the big muscle. They got more resources than everybody, uh, and and so when they come in, it's a big help and it pushes things along. But they they're often kind of slow. So th I think that it's as quick to get an AG moving on a case as it is to have a conversation and get the staff looking at what our legal options might be. So so Catherine, if I may just add one last piece to that point. Uh, a number of years ago, ADL historically is a civil rights organization. And civil rights organizations in the most traditional concept um, sue, they, they bring litigation against a real or perceived violation of civil rights or civil liberties. That, that's historically what civil rights organizations do. What ADL did is kind of break from that norm a little bit. We created a center of technology and society in Silicon Valley to do work with technology companies, not just to be on the front end of the criminal justice side on, on legal uh, measures that can be approached, but also on making the fundamental um, way in which policies and programs by social media and technology companies um, evolve and get better. And so we do audits and scorecards and reports and analysis in a way to show companies like a Facebook, like a Twitter, like a Reddit, et cetera, where there are gaps in their system. When we pull sample data of tweets or of posts on Facebook, and we can show that that misinformation, where that horrific anti-Semitic trope where that xenophobic statement, you know, reached tens of millions of people, that's important, you know, case examples 
for companies to use as test cases to figure out how do we prevent this because we see the real world impact, mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And thank you for the reminder, too, that this, this advocacy work is needed at the grassroots local level, at the state level, and, and at the national level. I could just mention, this is the point that I think all of us agree on. You cannot localize responsibility mm -hmm. in only one place. Right. Mm -hmm. and, no, and nobody can say, it's not my job, it's over there. It's everybody's job, congressional, mm -hmm. you know, uh, front end approaches. I think, look, most companies, they don't exist to perpetuate false information. Of course. Yeah. They exist because they have a business model and maybe even they want to, like, I don't know, open up the world a little bit. I mean, they, it's not all dollars and cents. Part of it is, you know, I started this company because I wanted to share information and create a, a platform where we can facilitate greater communication. Front end conversations often will work. Now, companies, let's be honest, tend to resist, uh, um, um, you know, people telling them what to do. But when they're afraid that they're going to get a bill passed or going to get sued, sometimes they get quickly more reasonable and say, you know, maybe some of those front-end solutions are better than I thought. So that's good. So we've got to do all these things, and mostly we've got to have the public demanding change because that, that's something that will definitely catch the attention of, of, any, of, of any business as well, knowing that their customer base wants this. So... No, thank you so much for that. We have four minutes, uh -oh. we and talk, we've got we a big to topic, <laughs> which is Ukraine. And so I want to make sure that I get to that. But this has been this has been a really rich conversation. So thank you. So I just wanted to go down the line for all of you. You know, looking at this horrific invasion of Ukraine the last two weeks, how do you see past trends and disinformation being utilized um, for this conflict? And what are we learning right now that is new? And I'll start with you, Graham. I know you've been very close to this. Yeah, of course. So we have teams. Uh, this has been, uh, we've looked at the information environment. We've monitored the conflict in Ukraine for uh, since 2014, 2015. So right now, today, we have uh, the meeting just before this session was with our staff that is still in Ukraine, based in Ukraine. Uh, I won't say where at this point, but also staff that is uh, based in Tbilisi, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, Riga, Latvia, uh, Brussels, and here in D.C., uh, and they're monitoring the information environment. What we saw in the lead up to this military offensive, this military invasion by, uh, by Russia of Ukraine, was uh, an age-old Russian information operation uh, based in disinformation, uh, false justifications for war, uh, based in things like hate speech, right? The, uh, the fact that uh, the Russian public believes that, uh, or has been told uh, time and again repeatedly uh, that Ukraine is is run by Nazis, uh, or that uh, Ukraine is is run by Jews. At the same time, right, throwing things or at this. Ukraine is theirs, right? Yeah. Or Ukraine is traditionally the theirs, uh, ethnically theirs, yeah, yeah. Uh, in their opinion. And so this kind of uh, uh, colonial narrative, yeah. in that sense. Uh, and so we saw uh, any number of uh, justifications for war. I expect that that debate on the, that disinformation will continue to to play out. We're also looking at the online information environment to verify war crimes. Uh, targeting of civilians, targeting of schools, hospitals, civilian infrastructure, using Holocaust memorial sites, and the use of munitions that are illegal, uh, cluster munitions, vacuum bombs, things like that. And so uh, you see disinformation have, to a point that we've made earlier, have a real world impact. Disinformation used to start a war. And we're seeing that play out right now uh, in real time. Everything that you said, Graham, is spot on. Let me extend a, a thought 
that, look, there's a lot of folks who are in power around the world who would love to use this model to take territory. Mm -hmm. if, they are if, if Putin is allowed to do this with the disinformation, expect way more chaos. This has to be stopped because uh, it, 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 many, it, it is sort of just getting started. Although, you know, Putin has been working on this for, for a long time, and, the, and all of the lies and disinformation will, will just proliferate. Um, the anti-Semitism, the, 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 all of the hatred and, 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 and ethnic persecution of ethnic minority will just ratchet up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's another thing I think, it's another reason to take this really seriously. And, and the other thing is that, and this plays off something George mentioned, yes, the, the loss of life caused by these dis disinformation is without a doubt completely tragic, but it's even, in my view, more tragic. Because when you have a tree of life, what you do is you inject a paralyzing fear into the group that was targeted. So now, if you're Jewish American, you're like, Oh my God, can I go to the synagogue? This, this, this thing happens um, at, at, at Mother Emanuel Church. Can I go to the church? These things happen at the, all these different, you know, at the mosque. It's like, can we go to the mosque? We're afraid to go to the mosque now. And so this, this is an effort to demobilize and weaken civil society writ large. And then they walk into it and say, now this is part of the effort because at the end of the day, these, these fascist-minded people, which, which I think they are, what they're seeking is power. And, if you, and, and how do you get it? Well, one way to get it is make everybody else give up their power. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you. And George? I, I would, uh, uh, Attorney General Ellison's last point is spot on. Uh, I would just kind of conclude by saying the anti-Semitic tropes, the direct kind of accusations of, of a Nazi-controlled Ukraine, the targeting of Jewish institutions, Holocaust memorial sites in Ukraine. I mean, the, the recording of these incidents is happening worldwide. Institutions like the Atlantic Council, organizations like the ADL, international humanitarian organizations are documenting meticulously what's happening here. And ultimately, individuals and potentially countries need to be held to account for the human rights atrocities that are happening in the Ukraine and elsewhere across the globe to other ethnic, racial, or religious minority groups. Um, we live in an information age that can be an incredible force for good. We also live in an information age where we see that force and that ability can also be used for evil. We need to be on guard. The initial signs of, of evil we've seen come out of the information space in this current Russia-Ukraine conflict. We will continue to monitor and look forward to reporting back with this audience what we find and potentially some solutions. Yes, thank you so much. I think we've all talked about how disinformation is not new, but we're in some terrifying new territory, whether it be in Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, or currently what's unfolding in Ukraine. And so thank you so much to each of you for all that you do to combat hate and disinformation um, online and, and offline as well. Thank you for joining us on this episode of PR and Moss with me, Mudassar Ahmed. I hope you learned something valuable in this episode. I certainly did. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Stay tuned.